Uh, we start a new series this weekend, Awaken. If you would take your Bible to the, uh, and turn with me to the book of Joel, Old Testament book. Uh, I'm really excited about what, how God's going to use this as we have been talking about seeking Him and talking about revival and praying uh, for that, how God's going to use that book uh, to that. And uh, at the end of the month, when, one of the things, if you're new, new to First Church, uh, that we do every year for the past, I don't know how many years, is we have an annual testimony service where we just share some of the amazing things that are going on in lives, just like your own. And so just make sure that that is on your calendar. That's the end of the month. And this series will just really uh, dovetail right into that moment where we celebrate what God's up to uh, in our lives. I uh, want to make you aware, too, a little sidebar. Um, we, the, the staff, uh, the advisory council, we've been going through a study on the book of Joel, kind of in preparation for uh, the start of this series this weekend. And if you'd like a copy of that Bible study out at the uh, Info Hub, we've got copies of that. We're underwriting some of that, so they're like five bucks. You can get one. We want to make that accessible to everybody. Uh, and so encourage you to uh, join us over the next few weeks, and you can be in that Bible study that might uh, help you uh, to study it along with us. Now, the book of Joel. Joel doesn't get much foot traffic uh, in Scripture, not like the frequent flyer books that you might find in Scripture, the, the Psalms, the, the Matthew, Mark, Luke's, and John, the Gospels, you know, they get a lot of, a lot of foot traffic in them. Uh, Romans, you know, there's, there's some books that, that we seem to go to a lot. Joel, and if you're turning to the book of Joel, uh, I would just say to you, there's no shame in using the table of contents. Uh, uh, the book of Joel can be a little, little intimidating to find. It's one of a, a group of what's called the minor prophets. There's, it's a group of 12 uh, books of the, of the uh, Old Testament called the minor prophets. Now, uh, we, to kind of illustrate what we're talking about, we talk about the minor prophets. Uh, we've just come through the baseball season. Congrats to the Rangers. I know we have at least one Ranger fan. How many years, Phil, has it been since... 40, it's like your, yeah, like their entire existence. Okay, so, <laughs> so, so, so the Rangers won, so they're a major league team, uh, another major league team would be like the Cubs, you know, they're, so you've got these major league teams, and you also have minor league teams, like the Hickory, North Carolina Crawdads. That's, uh, or the South Bend Cubs. Those are minor league teams. Now, when you think of major and minors, the majors are the really good, good players, and the minors are the, they're good, but they're not as good as the majors. That's not the way it works with the major prophets and the minor prophets. They're the minor prophets only because they're shorter. That's the difference. Now, just for fun, uh, I'm going to name some minor league baseball teams. You tell me the one that's not, again, not, an actual minor league team. Okay, here we go. The Carolina, Carolina Disco Turkeys. The Burlington Sock Puppets. The Rocket City Trash Pandas. The Amarillo Sod Poodles. The Hartford Yard Goats. Or the, and this is Crystal's favorite, the Florence Yalls. Okay. Uh, she's from Kentucky, Tennessee area. So, uh, so which of those that I named is not an actual minor league baseball team? Any guesses? Actually, they all are. So, 
Trick question. I always wanted to be a teacher and give trick questions. That was a trick question. All of those are actually minor league baseball teams. And again, what is minor profits versus major profits? Minor profits are only minor profits, not because they, they got the J, it's not the JV team, it's not the JV profits. It's on, they're only minor profits because they're shorter than those major profits like Isaiah or Jeremiah. Okay, so with that in mind, I want you to think about our world. I want you to think about what's going on in our world. And as we think about our world and we think about the condition of Christianity, we think about the condition of the church, not just around the world, but specifically as we think about it in the United States, we desperately need the awakening message that is found in the book of Joel. As I've mentioned to you before, I've been praying for us, praying that God would bring revival, praying in my own life that God God, revive me. God, do something in me. Awaken me. And I've been praying that for us, and I really, as I said before, I really believe that God can use, as we seek him, as we get serious with him, as, that, that we can expect and anticipate that God can do something in us, revive us, awaken us. And so, Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that over us. I pray, Father, that you would use this truth that we find in your word, that you would use it to awaken us, that you would do something fresh and something new in us. God, if there's anything that, that we need to get right with you, God, I pray that you would move in us. We, we want to hear from you. We want to be open to you. God, I pray in Jesus' name that you would send your spirit and that you would speak to us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Joel 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethiel. Now that first phrase, the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord, obviously, this was something that applied in Joel's day, and it applies in our day as well because it is, as he describes, the word of the Lord. This isn't Joel's words that, that, that God chose to just put in the book. They, they're kind of, sort of, maybe apply, and so he decided to, to, to put them in the Bible. No, this is the word of the Lord brought to us through the prophet Joel. Now, we don't know a whole lot about Joel, uh, his name means Yahweh is God, literally, if you look at the kind of the way is the letters of his name, Yahweh is God. We don't know much about the time frame of the book. We don't know much about his father, even though his father is listed. We don't know anything really about him. There's a number of prophets that you get little clues about when they were written, who they were, uh, what was going on, based on maybe the king that they talk about that was around when they prophesied whether it was the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom, what was happening, some of the events maybe that were going on, historical events within the book. Uh, so books like Hosea and Amos and Isaiah, uh, all of those, they, you, you get little glimpses of when they're written based on some of the detail in them. Not so with Joel. Some scholars think that Joel was written early, and so by early I mean if they, all these prophets were written during the time of the northern and most of northern and the southern kingdoms, and that's after the days of uh, Saul and David and Solomon, the kingdom was split into two parts, Israel to the north and Judah to the south. And so uh, some scholars think that, that uh, Joel was written before the northern kingdom was invaded by the Assyrians and was taken into captivity and was destroyed. Some think that. 
Some scholars think that uh, Joel was a prophecy during the time after the northern kingdom had been destroyed by Assyria, but before the Babylonians had invaded Judah, the southern kingdom, and it was written during that time. And still other prophets, or not prophets, but scholars think that Joel, the prophet, wrote during the time or prophesied during the time after both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom of Judah had been taken into captivity and they had then come back, some of them, and rebuilt that Ezra and Nehemiah time frame when the Jerusalem had been rebuilt, the walls of Jerusalem had rebuilt, been rebuilt. And I kind of asked back and forth, but that's probably where I would land. But if you would get six uh, you know, scholars in a room and you, all, you ask all of them to tell you when the book of Joel was written, if you got those six uh, scholars in a room, you'd probably get eight opinions of what, when. That was supposed to be mildly funny, but okay, well... We'll move on. You'll catch the next dad joke when it comes, all right? Uh, so we don't really know, suffice it to say, we don't really know when Joel's written. And what that makes me think is that probably the reason that we don't know exactly when it was written so that this is a book that just reiterates. God is reiterating that this is a word, a word of the Lord for all time. This is for us. This is something that God wants to share with us to help us. It is the word of the Lord. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days? Or in the days of your fathers, tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. So he begins by talking. This word of the Lord comes to the elders comes to the leaders of the nation. If you've got a different translation, some of the translations read, old men. <laughs> he's talk, he talks to the to the old men. Hear this, old men. Uh, some translations say I thought that was that was kind of funny. And then notice he says, you know, elders, uh, leaders, old men. He says, and then all inhabitants. This is a prophecy, not just for the leaders, not just for the old men. This is a prophecy for all of us. You see, there was a natural disaster that had taken place. We'll look and we'll see that in just a minute. There's a locust plague that had come into the land. And so he asked the rhetorical question, has anything like this happened before? And the answer to that is no, nothing like this has happened. And so, and so we need to think about, uh, as we think about that, that this is something to, to tell the next generation and the next generation and the next generation the implications of what's going on. This is something that needs to be retold. The principles, the lessons that God is trying to teach need to be retold. And so we are here today and we are a part of the retelling of this story. And so in poetic language, he describes this locust plague, verse 4. When the, what the cu- cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Now there's different stages to the development of locust, <laughs> and I do this uh, research so that you don't have to, uh, but you got the egg stage, you got the nymph stage, and you got the, the adolescent or juvenile stage, and then you've got the adult stage, and so certainly you could say, well, maybe Joel is talking about the different stages of the development of the locust, and that these, the, you know, that's, it's a locust, but it's uh, the swarms, and it's their development is what he's talking about. I hold to the, probably the idea that it's not the development of the locust he's talking about, but these waves of locusts these repeated repeated waves that are coming into the land 
And so you have the cutting locust, the swarming locust, the successive waves of locust, the hopping locust, the destroying locust. I have a picture of a locust plague that came to Jerusalem in 1915. This is from the Library of Congress. They, they uh, chronicled the events around Jerusalem of that day, and so there's some really interesting uh, pictures of what actually happened. And so this is a picture of of a, the same tree, the same time period, it's just before the locust and after the locust. You see what actually literally happened. There were, there were eyewitness accounts. Again, you can go to the Library of Congress and you can, you can see the, hear these written out eyewitness accounts. Let me just read an excerpt from one of them. A loud noise, as he describes in 1915, outside of Jerusalem, a loud noise was heard before the locusts were seen produced by the flapping of myriads of locust wings and resembling the distant rumbling of waves. Imagine so many that it sounds like the rumbling of waves. The sun was suddenly darkened. Showers of their excrement fell thick and fast, resembling those of mice. Their elevation above the earth was at times hundreds of feet, and at other times they flew low, detached numbers alighting. Mr. Aronson, another witness of the plague of 1915, testifies that in less than Two months after the first appearance, not only was every green leaf devoured, but the very thick bark was peeled from the trees, which stood out white and lifeless like skeletons. The fields, he says, were stripped to the ground. Those are eyewitness accounts of the plague, a plague that came to the Holy Land in 1915. And it's reminiscent of what Joel describes. Joel is communicating that this is, this is a result of the disobedience of God's people as they have, they have turned their back on him as he's tried to warn them and warn them and warn them to, to come back. They haven't, and so this warning comes in the form of this plague. Awaken, you drunkards, and weep. Wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth and has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Wow. That's exactly the description of those eyewitnesses from 1915. And he's describing the destruction of this army. Not an army in the traditional sense of the word, but an army of locusts that have come. And it, it's also interesting that he starts with the drunkards. He, he's he's calling, calling those individuals that have just been kind of focusing on themselves and, and living life and enjoying life. And he says, you guys need to sober up. You need to wake up to what's going on around you. One writer said, he's talking to the pleasure seekers. He's talking to those people who are apathetic to their own moral decay, and he says to them, wake up. Joel says to us, wake up. And then we read about this destructive horde of locusts, and it's just like, uh, you know, we, we read, we see the pictures, and it's just like he describes. They're powerful, they're beyond number, their teeth are like lions. Trees described as the bark having been eaten off, and they're just white, lifeless skeletons on the horizon. He goes on to say, Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of your youth, of her youth. 
The grain offerings and the drink offerings are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed, the ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine, wine dries up, the oil languishes. And he calls the people to lament. And he says to lament like this. Imagine a, a bridegroom or a bride and, and her, her, her groom before, right before their wedding day. Something happens and dies and is gone. And imagine even before she's married, she's right at the, at the moment of being married and something happened. Imagine how, how she would feel, how she would lament over that. On the eve of her marriage, the, the level of anguish. And he says we should be lamenting, crying out like that. He goes on to say, imagine the priest who their very livelihood is taken away. They can't, can no longer go into the, into the temple and perform the, the, the sacrifices. There's no wine. There's no, nothing for the, the grain offerings, the, the different offerings they would do. They could no longer lead the people in worship to their God. They could no longer go into the temple and do the things that just spoke of how God's presence was with them. They could no longer do that. But then the reality probably is that it had been some time since God's presence had been with them. But they didn't even realize that God's presence had left. Highlights for us, those times in our own lives, when we get so caught up with what's going on in our world and with ourselves that we don't look at the spiritual condition of our lives, we don't realize how we've let things come between us and God. And so quietly, the Spirit has just left. And that's what he's, that's what he's seeing there. They were worshiping pleasure. They were worshiping themselves. They were worshiping other false gods. They were turning a blind eye to injustice of their day. And that so sounds like what happens to us. He says, put on, if we skip down to verse 13, put on sackcloth and lament, O priest, wail, O ministers of the altar, go in, pass the night in sackcloth. O ministers of, of my God, because grain offerings and drink offerings are withheld from the house of your God, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land of the house of the Lord your God, and cry out to the Lord, alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. And his destruction from the Almighty, it comes. So he's, he first he calls the priests then. He calls the religious, religious leaders to put on sackcloth. And sackcloth was a sign of mourning that you see, a sign of repentance that you see throughout Scripture. And he calls them to that. Does everybody know what a Snuggie is? Anybody admit that you've got a Snuggie at home? Anybody got a Snuggie? Okay, I see that hand. Okay, a snuggie, and again, I do this research on important stuff like this so that you don't have to. Let me, I pulled this right from the Snuggie uh, website. Yes, there is a Snuggie website, by the way. Um, and it describes the Snuggie as a body-length blanket made of super soft fleece with sleeves in it that you can wear around. It's advertised as the ultimate in comfort, and then here's a quote, the wearable blanket. Does that not sound amazing? All right. Who would love to come to worship and be able to wear a Snuggie? That would be amazing, wouldn't it? To sit here, we, we'd have to 
we'd have to expand the sanctuary if we, if we offered snuggy worship. Uh, and so just imagine that. Okay, so just imagine that. And then the, the sackcloth, so we get some sense of what it is. Sackcloth is the exact opposite of the snuggy. When he says, put, the, put sackcloth on, imagine it's Michigan, it's January, it's one of those days when you go outside and you breathe... Breathe in deep and your nose hairs freeze. You know one of those days? Okay. All right. So imagine that. And you're so cold that you go in. I'm going to take a hot shower. And you turn the shower on and it's hot. And it's getting you warmed up. And you just keep turning it up hotter and hotter and hotter and hotter. And then you realize that you've been in there probably too long. And you turn it off and you dry off. And imagine as your skin begins to crack in the dryness of a January in Michigan, that then you put on wool, a wool sweater, no shirt underneath, just a wool sweater. I'm not talking about that new, fangled, soft, awesome wool. What's that called? The starts with an M. Merino wool. Okay, some of you know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about old school, cool, old school wool. And imagine just putting that on, no t-shirt underneath, Imagine how, you know how, just how itchy and horrible that would be, and that gives you some sense when he calls them to pass the night in sackcloth, he says. They're desperate. They're desperate for answers. They're desperate for for God to move, and he calls them to that, to, to do something, and notice all the action words. He's calling them, not to just think about what's going on, but he says to lament. He says, mourn. He says, put on sackcloth. He says, wail, consecrate, call, gather, cry out. And he starts with the priest. He says, he says to the priest, he says to the religious leaders. But then he says, he calls them to call for a, a solemn assembly to gather all of the elders and all, he says, the inhabitants. So everyone needs to come clean before the Lord. To come desperate before the Lord, to mourn what has been lost in desperation that the desperation that the kind of desperation that moves us to repentance and, and he describes repentance although he doesn't use that word repentance but he, he talks about crying out before the Lord and the reality is yes this locust plague is bad but there is something else coming and he talks about it in verse 15 he says and it's nothing to compare to what's described as the day of the Lord that he says is near. God, whose one day is like a thousand days, says the day of the Lord is near. And the day of the Lord, you know, again, they've got this present situation, this locust plague that, that, is, that God's trying to use to wake them up from their slumber. But there's also another day that's coming that's going to be really serious, this great day of the Lord. And the man associated, we see it throughout Scripture, this phrase, the day of the Lord, this day of the Lord, this future climactic intervention by God in history that will bring ultimate divine judgment. That's the day of the Lord. That's the day when sin will be punished, when, when God will take his people, gather his people, and we will be with him forever in, our, forever in our heavenly home that has been prepared for us. That great day of the Lord, we see it some 18 times in scripture talked about. Five times here in the book of Joel itself. Now, I know we love coming to church. I know we love talking about God's love and God's grace and God's 
the joy of the Lord that's ours and the peace that passes understanding that can be ours in Christ. And it's absolutely, we, we focus on those things. And, and most of the time, those are the things that we talk about. But for us to really understand the love and the mercy and the grace of our God, we must also understand these other parts of God's nature. That We have to also understand the justice of God. And friends, if we're going to teach all that Scripture teaches us, that we must also understand that judgment is coming. Truth that is found over and over in Scripture. And I understand that it chafes against our 21st century sensibilities. But even though it chafes against our 21st century sensibilities, it does not mean that it is not true. It doesn't mean that we can stick our head in the sand and ignore what is plainly taught in Scripture, that there is a great day of the Lord that's coming. And friends, it's near. The Revelator describes it in Revelation 20. And I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each of them, according to what they had done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Friends, the full counsel of God's Word teaches us that these things are warnings to us. Just like there were warnings in Joel's day, but there is coming another day. And my job, friends, is not to candy coat truth, but to share truth and to prepare you for that day. If you skip down to verse 16, it is not it's not the food cut off before their, our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of God. The seed shrivels under the clods. The storehouses are des- desolate. The granaries are torn down because the grain has dried up. How the beast groan. The herds of the cattle are perplexed because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I call. And so the food is cut off. The joy and the gladness is cut off from the house of God, from the temple. And even the new crops, as they try to plant seed because now a drought has come, they plant seeds and the seed dries and dies under the clods of dirt that are in the field. The storehouses are empty, the granaries are empty, they're torn down. Even the the animals, the description of the animals in the field that are perplexed because there's nothing, the pasture is gone, there's nothing for them to eat. And then notice what Joel does. Knowing that this Judgment has come as a result of their disobedience and how God had warned them over and over and over. And finally, this judgment that is, 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 has, been, has, has come as, a, as something that must wake them up and should wake them up. And he understands where it comes from, but he also understands the reality that their hope comes from God. Their hope still comes from God and God alone. And so in that moment, he cries out to God. And that's what we must do. Let's, real quick, in the few minutes that we have left, what is the, what's the lesson that the locusts have to teach us? 
What's the lesson from the pain that we can experience at times in our lives? What does it have to teach us? I, I think of the words of C.S. Lewis. I've shared with them, you, with them with you before. Powerful, true from this classic work, The Problem of Pain. And this is what he, what he writes. We can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Friends, through this locust plague, God is is rousing a deaf world and into our world he's trying to rouse us. And so what do the locusts teach us? The locusts teaches us that sin can ravage our lives. The, the reality is that this horrific plague is the result of the nation's sin. This ravaging, the locusts are ravaging their lives just like sin ravages our lives. Sin destroys. We see its impact around us. We see its impact in us. It destroys And so will the pain and the tragedies that we we face, will the things going on in our world, will they drive us to wake up? Will we uh, allow them, like Joel was trying to get in his day, for them to wake up those that were slumbering? Will they wake us up today? Will we wake up? Will we weep for what has been lost, what sin has ravaged? Will we weep over the cost of sin? Some pastors and I, we met with uh, Commissioner Werfel. I don't know if she's here today. And we were talking with her about the opioid crisis in our county. There's some money that's flowing back to each county or a lot of counties around our, uh, uh, our country to try to stem the epidemic of the opioid crisis. In Berrien County alone, the opioid death rate has increased over the last three years 115%. Talk about something that's ravaging, sin that is ravaging lives. Pastor Hyman and I met this week with the uh, reps from the Department of Health and Human Services, and we talked about the hundreds of children that are in foster care in our county. Wonderful kids that are in foster care in our county. Many of them as a result of the ravaging of sin in other people's lives that's impacting their own heartbreaking story. And so we look around our world, and we look around our nation, we look around our community, and we look at Ukraine, and we look at Israel, and we look at Gaza, and we look at the chaos in Haiti, and we look at children that are bound in chains in sex trafficking, and the list goes on and on and on. Sin ravages our world, and what do we do? Do we weep? Do we mourn? Do we lament? It leaps off the page of Joel, and it's right here in our lives as well. The ravaging impact of sin. Secondly, the locusts teach us that desperation can be a powerful gift. How many of you have your own story, and in your own story there's chapters where when you finally got to the end of yourself, when you finally got to some point where you were finally, finally desperate enough, it's at that point, at that fork in the road, that you finally turned and you finally repented and you finally came clean before God and you finally looked to God for the grace and the mercy and the hope that you needed and you, and you came full circle back. But then how many of us have come to that fork in the road and instead of taking a turn toward God, we've doubled down. We've doubled down and we've shook our fist at God and we've chosen our own way. 
And we've chosen to ignore the urging of the Spirit to come home, to come clean, to come and find redemption and forgiveness and grace and mercy and hope. Again, to get help from C.S. Lewis to frame the reality for us, he wrote there are two kinds of people in the end on that great day of the Lord. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and to those whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. Which leads us to the final lesson from the locust, and it's that genuine repentance is the foundation for lasting spiritual transformation. God invites us to come home. He invites us to repent. He invites us to, uh, to, to come and to, to experience through repentance what, what He wants to do in our lives. He wants to forgive. He wants to be in relationship with us as we stop playing God, stop doing it on our own, and we, and we repent and we come home. Genuine repentance is the foundation for God's transformation of us. We invite our worship team to come back out. We have the privilege today of being able to take communion to be able to remember the sacrifice that Christ made to make our redemption, our salvation, our relationship with God possible. And as we prepare to take communion, as we prepare on this first day of this first weekend of this Awaken series, I just want to invite you to get serious and to, to peel back the layers and to allow God to speak to you today. And so let's use those words that Joel used. And so let's wake up. As you think about that phrase, wake up, is there something you need to wake up to? Is there some repentance that you need to, you need to make to the Lord? Some sin that you need to lay aside that's ravaged your life or ravaged maybe the lives of those around you? Or lament. Maybe that's a word that hit home, hits home today. Do you need to lament over what's going on in our world? What's going on around us? Maybe lament even the pain that you have caused in other people's lives. Do you need to confess a lack of compassion or empathy for the pain of others? Has it been a long time since you read a newspaper or watched a news report that broke your heart? That statistics are just statistics or, or, do, or, or do they break your heart? Do they cause you to lament? Do they cause you to mourn? And so do you need to mourn? Do you need to, to feel, to, to mourn over what sin has cost you? To mourn over the, the, this merciful God that loved you so much that he sent Christ to die that you could have life and, and, and our sin put him on the cross. Do you mourn what it cost God to buy your salvation in Jesus? Maybe we need to mourn today over the pain we've caused God and others and then repent do you need to just repent to confess and come clean before the Lord to get right today with the Lord and so will you allow the spirit of God to speak we have communion here we encourage you to come and as you're ready you come as you allow the Lord to speak to your heart would you come the top layer, as you peel it back, reveals the, the bread, which is the body of Christ. It represents the body of Christ. That next layer, as you peel it back, represents the cup, which is the blood of Jesus. That represents what Christ did for you as he shed his blood on the cross for your forgiveness of sin. And then I would invite you to, to use these altars. We're here in this room where we have these altars, a great place to come and kneel and just spend a little time with the Lord, do some business with the Lord today. We have people that are... are prayer uh, 
prayer partners that would love to pray with you if you have a need. And I'm going to invite them in just a moment as you begin to come. They're going to come and they'll be at the corners of the room. We also have somebody in the balcony. And as they're at the corners of the room, as you come, if you want someone to pray with you, you can just make eye contact with them and they'd love to pray with you. But let's use these altars. Let's come clean before the Lord. And so, Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that you would bless the bread and the cup, that you would just help them to remind us, Father, of the great sacrifice that Jesus made. That, that, that you loved us so much that you did not want us to, to be separated from you, but you, you sent Christ so that we could be back in relationship with you. And so, God, we confess our need to lament and mourn and repent before you, God, that we, we get so self-absorbed in our lives. And, God, I pray today that as we are in this first week of this series, that, that God, that you would awaken something in us, do something fresh and something new in us, God. Revive us, Father. Awaken us, Father. We pray in Jesus' name.